Don't miss the men and the magic behind Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel. We'll be live at the following places. Saturday the 6th of April, we will be at the Bath Comedy Festival. Saturday the 4th to Monday the 6th of May, we'll be in Brighton at the Brighton Fringe Festival and we will be there as well on May the 31st, June the 1st and June the 2nd. June the 14th, you can catch us at Hastings Comedy Festival. And throughout August, we'll be returning to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. More dates set to be announced anytime soon. So check out www.caneenablemagic.com for more. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. Two magicians here at the Adelaide Fringe Festival and we've got a very special episode for you today. As many of you know, we are in the Botanical Garden, so what we've got coming up is our top five creatures that we found this festival. Abel, can I stop you there? Please do. I've, uh, as lovely as that would be, Uh I've booked a guest. You don't book guests. Yeah, I know. I've booked one. I've done a cheeky one. I've booked us someone in. It's not a bad one, is it? You see that foulard over there? The levitating foulard that's been levitating in the distance for a while, yes. I'm not actually levitating it. There's a guest underneath it. There's a celebrity mystery guest underneath the uh, foulard for you to interview. Okay, who is it then? Well, have a guess. Uh, Is it someone performing at the Adelaide Fringe Festival? Yep. Okay. Is it an extraterrestrial being? Uh, no, but he does have green eyes. Okay. He's got no bones in his fingers and is made entirely of rubber. So he doesn't have blue eyes, as has been widely reported in the past. No, they're green. Okay. He's made of rubber and he um, he smells of walnuts. He smells of walnuts? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's only one person that could be. Who? Is it Paul Beck? It's not Paul Beck. Do you want to whisk off the foulard and have a look see who it is? Let's see. Oh, it's Ben Hart. Hello, Ben. Hello. Welcome to Talking Tricks, Ben. Thanks for having me on Talking Tricks. So I'll go to the bar now, shall yeah, I? Yeah, you bugger off. Sliders all around. You bugger off. Okay. okay. So to kick us off, Ben, to find out a little bit more about you, we're going to play a very fun and exciting game called Heart to Heart with oh, Ben like Hart. I like that. So, Ben, what I have here is a list of many facts. Some of them are correct and can be attributed to you, Ben Hart. Others are about other famous hearts. Okay. You have to tell us whether they're about you or who the other heart is. I'm looking forward to learning about some other well-known hearts. (laughs) So, here we go. Fact number one. I won the first ever... Young Magician of the Year. Is that about Ben Hart or another Hart? The first ever Young Magician of the Year was in 1960-something or other. So I think that that was another Hart. And do you know who that Hart is? That was Johnny Hart. It was Johnny Hart. Well done, Ben. You've won one shot at the bar later on. Way! But you did, in fact, enter and win Young Magician of the Year, Ben. Tell us about that moment in your life. It was a long time ago moment. So um, I don't remember it very well. I remember thinking I wasn't going to win and then winning and then being um, 
I suppose, relieved. And then everybody else going, well, he shouldn't have won, should he? <laughs> I think I maybe won for originality and not being dressed by my grandparents. <laughs> and what made you want to enter that competition in the first place and what impact has that had on your career? Well, as I'm sure you know, because you were young, you've been magicians all your lives, there isn't that much to do when you're a young magician, is there? It's like, well, what do we do? We enter Young Magician of the Year. At least it was back then. I think probably, I don't know whether the competition is still as, as exciting as it used to be, but before we were all on the internet, it was very, very exciting, I think. So I thought I'd get together my little manipulation act, you know, stick it in the back of my parents' car, <laughs> bosh out some appearing canes, and that's how it happens. Job done. Well, Ben, it's time to find out if this next fact is about you, Ben Hart, or another famous heart as we return to Heart to Heart with Ben Hart. Heart to Heart with Ben Hart. I have won two BAFTA awards. That is definitely not me. I have won no BAFTA awards. I have won nothing. It's Who? not about me. Do you know... Miranda a, Hart. It's not Miranda Hart. Oh, shit. Um, Tony Hart? It is Tony Hart. No way! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tony Hart has won two BAFTAs, but you have won a national television award for That's your true. role in Killer Magic. I did win that very famous and prestigious award in amongst Joey Essex and whoever else. Uh, on that day, we got a goodie bag, you know. It's a dream, isn't it, to get a, an award ceremony goodie bag. What's going to be inside? Is it going to be, I don't know, a Gucci wallet or whatever? Nope, this was nothing else in the bag but one bottle of fake tan. So that will tell you a lot about the National Reality TV Awards, for which Killer Magic won Best Reality Non-Competitive uh, Game Show Format or something. Some, like, very niche category structured reality game show or something yeah and that was fun I got very very drunk and um, I think I went up and made a bit of a speech which was very slurred and I think there's a video out there somewhere which I had to get taken off the internet and with Killer Magic you weren't just a performer on that you were kind of working behind the scenes uh, with other performers and the whole overall sort of creation of the show correct? Yeah I ended up doing a lot of magic consultancy for that show um, in an uncredited way because obviously when you have got a non-competitive competitive reality format it doesn't really look appropriate that even though the competitive side of the show was a narrative conceit just designed to give the show some some forward momentum uh, it still does, looks a bit ridiculous if you have a performer that's also advising the other performers on their material. Uh, Noel Qualter was the credited magic consultant on it, but um, yeah, I developed a lot of the material for that and helped the other magicians with magic. And uh, so I was quite emotionally involved in that project. And um, yeah, I mean, I leave magicians to decide what they thought of that show, but I think actually every magic trick on that show was original. It was all like really unusual stuff and we managed to make a magic show within the, the relatively recent television climate that was not just another fucking street magic show. So I'm very proud of that and uh, I'm sure everyone involved is. And thinking about some of the tricks that you performed on there, what were some of your favourite routines that you created for the show? My, I, I did some things I liked and some things I hated. What people don't, don't necessarily realise is we really were under a lot of time pressures. You know, you've got just a few weeks to shoot an awful lot of magic. 
and most of the time is spent actually not shooting magic, it's spent shooting standing at the top of a staircase, walking down the staircase, looking to the camera with a lens flare, you know, and you waste all your life on that, and then they go, okay, you've got to get up at five in the morning, and you've got two hours to shoot this trick in some disused warehouse or something, oh, and it's freezing cold. I did a thing in the ice bar, I did a trick in my underwear in the ice bar, and it was a stupid idea. It's amazing what people would do to get on television, and Anthony asked me if I'd do it, Anthony Owen, the exec producer on that show, thinking, I'm guessing I'd say no, and I said, yeah, I'd do it. But uh, I don't know how magic talky I can get. I don't know what your listenership is comprised of. But there was something I was really proud of about that routine, um, which I did in my pants in the freezing cold, where um, we actually cut it out and used it in a later episode. I reshot it, the same trick. But I devised a special way of getting rid of something naughty, which worked whilst I was in my pants, and I was very pleased with it. Uh, I won't tell you what it is, but basically, I made a pants savant for any magicians listening. The image is just oh. too arousing. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, that was the only day in my life I've ever done push-ups. <laughs> that morning I got up, I was like, got to get pumped up, got to do my push-ups. <laughs> and I genuinely was absolutely freezing cold. And I, I um, had to have one of those little tinfoil blankets at the end. And I completely lost the ability to have a coherent sentence. I was like, <laughs> cold, Ben, cold, Ben, go home. And you mentioned uh, consulting, and I want to talk about your consulting work in a minute, but before then, I kind of just want to touch on something that came out pretty close to the end of Killer Magic, which was your Life Hacks Online BBC Free series, yeah. for want of a better term. Um, how did that come about, and what were some of your sort of takeaway moments from that? I'd had quite a good relationship with BBC Three over Killer Magic, and they were interested in doing something to coincide with them relaunching the channel as an online channel. Good news for them, bad news for me. Basically the idea was to do stupid made up life hacks which were magic tricks in disguise. It was, it was funny, um, it was the first magic show to be commissioned for the online BBC3 and I'm very proud of that. And magically I was really proud of everything. I was very, very annoyed that they cut the tricks in such a way where you no longer see them as coherent magic tricks. They were just like, oh, we're not really interested in the tricks at all. We're only interested in the idea of pranking people. Well, I don't really want to prank people. And so I, I think we did 35. I created 35 brand new tricks with brand new methods. And maybe I was thinking, actually, I might, I might try and put those into a little book or something for magicians because it seems a shame that they've all gone to waste and not the methods are lost. There was mad stuff in there, like uh, how to un... Uh, how to uncrack a broken egg and I don't know I can't even remember them we shot loads I literally shot in one one or two days a hundred takes because each trick we did like 35 tricks we did like three repetitions of each and I sat there at a desk and people just filed by and I just had this it was the most wearisome couple of days of my life I'll tell you now when you've done like a hundred takes of this stupid format if anybody asks you about it it's very hard to conjure up great passion for it because it was really fun but it was a volume it was just sheer volume I felt like I, I don't know it was like a factory and um, but it was a fun idea and it really does show you without wanting to sound horrible and rude it does show you kind of how gullible people are to be like there was, I remember there was one thing which was how to fix a broken shoelace by rubbing shoe polish into the shoelace and then like I don't know bashing it with a hammer or something I just made up this mad stuff and there was this one guy that was really getting into rubbing shoe polish into a shoelace. And he was absolutely covered with it. Absolutely covered. Really thinking it was going to work. Then off the back of that, we did a spin-off version where I did the life hacks on the uh, hosts of The Voice. Which is like Boy George, Paloma Faith and some other ones. 
I don't really remember the people. And that was also a bit of a nightmare shoot because I had managed to really, really damage my feet practicing a trick that I did in that to the point where I couldn't walk. And it also got really sick, so I had no voice. And I had the chills and I was shaking. And we nearly had to cancel it. But when you've got like boy George waiting in the room, you can't really just say, do you know what, we can't do it today. So that footage has been very cleverly cut so that I say almost nothing and do almost nothing in it because I was incapable. When creating those kind of 35 bespoke tricks for that show, was that kind of a number that they'd asked for or no. you'd set? And was it kind of, did you feel the pressure to create that amount or was it just an enjoyable experience coming up with all those new routines? So I can't remember who created the format, but I know that Matt Edmondson was like really pushing that forward as, a, as an idea. And I think it, maybe it was Matt's idea, uh, but he directed one episode, which was uh, like a slightly longer thing. We shot that one and that was like a pilot. And then they really wanted more. So we then recreated the environment of the first one so that we could still use that one in a different location. And we were going to shoot six or something extra. And then the BBC said, oh, well, if you're going to shoot six, can you shoot 20? And then we were like, well, if you're going to shoot 20, you might as well th shoot 35. And before you know it, it had gone from a day to shoot six to two days to shoot 35. So I sat in a hotel room with Anthony. O I was also on tour with Impossible at that time. So in amongst touring, I was like, we, we booked a room in Liverpool to shoot them. So I was going to do the matinee, go and shoot some, then do the evening show, then the next day do another full day of shooting. So at, when that all came to be, uh, I was in, a, in Southampton with Impossible. I sat in a hotel room with Anthony Owen and Noel Quarter, and somebody was going to be the art director with like a pile of crap laid out all over the bed. And we were like, right, we've got to come up with now another 20 or something tricks. So a lot of them were underdeveloped, but that was okay. And it was a huge achievement, and for some reason magicians didn't really, didn't really register on the magicians' radars, which is maybe a good thing. Final question on life hacks, and then I want to talk about impossible, as you kind of mentioned it there. But were you ever tempted as that number grew of the goalposts kept changing, so to speak, when you had to create a different amount of tricks? Were you ever tempted to maybe use something that wasn't totally originally yours or is that kind of something that you you always sort of adamant and make sure that you do I don't think we use anything that wasn't really original I remember I put in um, where you cut the beads off a necklace and then they go back on the necklace which is I think originally called the Carmo bead mystery if, we're, if I don't know who I'm talking to are we talking to magicians or normal people normal people probably couldn't care less mostly magicians, mostly magicians. Probably, that yeah. good. that's good I think um, I put something like that in that's an old trick from the 1920s or whatever probably before then uh, I don't think I put anything else in that wasn't wasn't a new idea or a new method. I did the Slidini knotted silks, uh, but generally they're almost all original. In actual fact, those two I remember specifically were I maybe hand prepared enough tricks and hoping that nobody would notice. And on the day they were like, "Okay, next one," and I was like, uh, "I've run out." So, <laughs> and then somebody somebody actually went around the corner to buy beads and some strings so I could do the bead one and somebody went and got my close-up bag so I could do the knotted silks. So uh, yeah, I mean it's tempting isn't it to just to take somebody else's thing but to be honest by the time you go through all the energy to adapt that for camera you might as well just come up with something new I think a lot of the time. Yeah, well coming up I want to talk about Impossible, I want to talk about you as a live performer and I also still want to talk about your consultancy work but as we're kind of in this realm of TV at the minute, um, is there any kind of TV stuff that you've got in the pipeline or you're looking ahead to do or and is that still a vehicle that you're interested in working on? I made a decision a couple of years ago, maybe about a year ago, to stop 
seeing TV as uh, like my career aspiration. I've done a lot of TV, but never really had anything that's had huge traction. Having said that, I don't think any magician, maybe apart from apart from the huge names, Dynamo or whoever, I don't think any magician in the UK has had any traction on anything really. I think a lot of the time stuff is being made because commissioners are saying, oh, we'll give it another go, see if anyone watches. But the truth is no one really cares because magic's very hard on TV. The commissioners are very slow to move with the times. And we're still making shows which are basically the same as David Blaine's first special in whenever that was, 1997 or something. Really, the format hasn't changed. I suppose Justin Wilman's stuff is kind of cool because it's talking about kind of feels contemporary, current ideas. But even so, magically, uh, it, not magically, but in terms of structure, it's still point the camera on the audience reactions and slightly less focus on the magic. So, yeah, I've always got TV stuff in the pipeline and I'm always having meetings and pitching formats. Unfortunately, the type of magic I'm really good at, I think, sorry to... to, to have that self-confidence but the material I'm good at generally has a slight darkness to it a slightly unusual or weird edge and it's quite hard to get a commissioner to get on board with that what they really want is shiny floor Saturday night magicians but why they want that I don't know because I don't think the public does want that you know if you look at what what the public really watch on Netflix or whatever people want a little bit of darkness and something unusual in their lives I think I'm definitely focusing on my live shows at the moment the people who need to know know where I am sort of waiting waiting for them to go oh actually maybe Ben would be able to make something cool and I want to delve into your live shows but what I'm interested to know about with Impossible is when I, I love watching your live shows and it's a real experience and I know that the whole show is kind of crafted as one sort of experience how did you find being a member of an ensemble uh, cast when you're kind of just coming out and doing a few minutes here and there the frustration for me is that because you're part of a team, you have to be really um, reliable. And by that I mean, like, my routines have to stay the same length of time and somebody else is, is calling the show, like you'd call an actual play or a musical. So there's somebody else there saying, stand by, lighting cue, 21, and go. Stand by, sound cue, and go. Right? So I can't change the show because then, they, then the, whole, the whole system crumbles apart. So you find that you can't adapt your material at all. So my material hasn't changed at all. And of course, you know, you go in on the first day, first show, and you're like, oh, that kind of worked. I'll give that another go. And before you know it, you can't, you know, it kind of worked, might not be good enough. And so now, yeah, now you're like two, two years into a show where it kind of works, and you can't change it because you're locked down and it would cost the producer too much money to have more technical rehearsals to change it. So I feel a bit constrained in that way. Having said that, uh, there's lots of things that are really nice about doing a show like that, an ensemble show. Little things as well, like, I don't have to worry about almost anything, I just turn up. I, I'm, any prop that I hold, I'm in charge of. Any prop that's too big for me to hold, somebody else is in charge of. So basically I set my pockets, but somebody launders the costumes every show. So, you know, I go into the dressing room, there is an iron shirt ready to put on, and a microphone ready to put on, and I just put a couple of cards in my pocket, walk on stage, that's lovely. And it's been really nice to work with some acts. I've worked with some of my favorite acts in All The Magic on that show, Aaron Crow, and acts that I think are unbelievably brilliant. 
so that's been really fun to see that and also to see that like when are act when do acts really fly and when do they kind of suffer like we're none of us are um none of us are like superheroes we all have our own moments where we handle things well and don't handle things well and it's really nice to have that camaraderie like to come off stage and be like I did a bit of a shit one tonight and for somebody to be like don't worry about it instead of you know you come off stage on your own and you sit in your dressing room on your own and you have to take off your own sweaty shirt and put it in your rucksack and take it over and you know wash it in the sink of your hotel you know all the realities of being on the road none of those exist so so yeah I've loved doing it and just to remind me how how long and how big was that tour and how many sort of countries did you end up taking in with it? Uh, we've, been, we've been all over. Um, it's, it was on and off for quite a while, so I don't, it wasn't like it was this many weeks. We did two consecutive runs in the West End, and that was really nice to be settled in the same theatre in the centre of London. That was lovely. And at that time I was living in a disused office block uh, in Blackfriars, so it was a very short, lovely walk along the river to the, to the uh, Noel Coward Theatre and it was really like heaven. I'd finish a show, walk across the river, beautiful. Uh, we've also been to like Singapore, um, Beirut, Dubai, the Philippines, blah, 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 you know, all over. And I have a feeling, even though it's not a constant show, I, I don't think that's the end of it. I think it'll come back at some point. I've heard rumours. In with all of this time then, you've kind of continuously developed your own solo shows. You're currently performing The Nutshell. For those that maybe haven't seen it, give us a brief overview of what that's like. It's an unusual show, I think. But of course, every performer says that about their own shows. It's slightly dark in places. Um, it's really baffling magic. I'll be honest, I got, I'm, I'm quite sick of seeing magicians do magic, which isn't really baffling. That's just like magic for the sake of doing magic. So I, I sat down and I, I basically thought, what would David Blaine do? I'm a huge Blaine fan. And I realised, like, oh, he's doing lots with his body, like regurgitation and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, OK, well, maybe I need to put myself really at the centre of the show. So I just created some routines where, like, there's no denying I'm working really hard for the audience. And some things which I hope are really baffling, and I've always had theatrical shows that tell a bit of a story. And this one, the story is kind of very fractured, comes together at the end. I've done um, six solo shows now, and none of them had an ending, which was like, a, it all comes together at the end ending, like a mentalism type prediction. So I wanted to do that. Well, I didn't want to do that. I hate shows that end like that. But every time I ever did a show, people would say to me, what you need is a prediction where you predicted everything that happened at the end of the show. So, because I've got a blanket rule where, is I, where I don't do legitimate mentalism, mind reading, I was like, well, how do, I, how do I translate that idea into something that could have been achieved through magic? So now I have a physical uh, prediction of the outcome of the show, which, because it's physical and three-dimensional, means that maybe it could have been achieved through magically altering things as opposed to mentalism predictions where nobody's wondering whether you magically altered the writing on the scroll. Right, so it's just a slightly different way of looking at it when it becomes a physical, tangible, tangible object. And the show was inspired by these mad dolls houses of violent crimes that I saw. And I was like, wow, that's just so cool. And uh, I'm pretty proud of the show. I'm so proud of it. I'm taking it back to Edinburgh for a second year. Normally I make a new show every year. Uh, this one I'm keeping for two years because I like it a lot and audiences like it and it sells well and I want to just 
tweak it a little bit more and improve it. There's moments in our show that I know are going to get a certain reaction from the audience and whether we have a show that maybe isn't as hot as a previous show or an audience isn't totally with us from the beginning, I know there's a point in the show that they're going to react in a certain way. Is there any moments in, in the nutshell that you kind of look forward to because you know you're about to do something ridiculous that the audience are always kind of going to respond to? I have a trick in the show which I honestly can't believe a magic trick can get that reaction. Um, I, did a, I did another podcast recently, relatively recently, one of your competitors, when I was in Edinburgh. Yeah. And um, he said he's never seen a magic trick get a reaction that strong, I think. Um, I've never seen a magic trick get a reaction like that. And so I look forward to that and I, I put it in the middle of the show. Traditionally speaking, you, you know, you put your best trick at the beginning or at the end, or ideally one, you know, both. I've started to throw away that structure. I've started to try to put what I believe to be the most powerful bit, bang smack in the middle, where the audience is most, their attention is most likely to be waning. And this just, it's like, re, it's like pushing the restart button on the show. And the reaction is unbelievable. It's so hard to talk about your own material without sounding like arrogant, but it's not just my material, you know, it's synthesized through all these other, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It's synthesized through other people's work and inspirations I've taken. But, yeah, fuck, it's a good trick. The, the, I mean, the reactions are so, are so strong that we have to actually kill the applause because it's disruptive. So it happens, we have, to, we have we put a blackout after it. Even though, traditionally speaking, in a magic show, to just have a blackout and then lights come back up and the magician is still there, having not moved, and the scene hasn't changed, it's weird. But otherwise, I can't, I can't pull the audience out of it. I can't be like, shut up everyone, I've got something to say. <laughs> so we have a blackout, anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good trick. Please don't kind of feel bad for acknowledging when things that you do are good, because there are things that you do that are good. Everything you do is good, so it's kind of like, it's a bit, I know it's sometimes you're like, oh, I have to be humble, but it's nice to hear you acknowledging things that work and why they work. I wonder with that particular trick, do you feel it's the strength of that piece of magic that makes the response as big as it is, or is it down to the story and the narrative of that piece that you've created for it? The particular trick is a real contrast of objects that shouldn't really go together. And also, it, the trick involves me bouncing something up and down on a fan for quite a long time. And in actual fact, the most work I put in was making that last as long as possible. So you're watching, it's, like, um, it's almost like a feat of juggling bouncing this thing up and down, bounce, 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 for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages. So they're kind of responding to the fact that you've been clearly working hard, the real contrast of objects, the, the real finality of it, it ends with me cracking an egg, like that's total finality. Um, yeah, there's lots and lots of reasons why it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's very hard to know, isn't it, though? Like, I've played with the timing a bit. Definitely there's something about interrupting the timing of the moment, not being like, and it's become an egg, right? Where I just go, there's this, there's this amorphous thing in my hand and I just like crack it at the glass. I also tried cracking it at the glass and dropping the egg in like really smoothly. And that's nowhere near as good as just like, just sort of cracking the fucker against the side of the glass and it sprays everywhere and it just looks like, like violent. That definitely gets a better reaction. Probably people are going, whoa, don't spray me with egg. <laughs> and I'm misinterpreting it, but. What I think it's cool about the routine that we're talking about is that it's so 
kind of easy with magic to make things as quick and fast and flashy as possible, but it's a really nice slow change that you do, which I think boosts that idea that it's kind of real magic. I actually believe that all best, all the best magic happens when the climactic moment of the magic trick is elongated as much as it can be. This is the reason why I think the broken and restored thread, the, the uh, Hindu thread, is a good trick because the moment of the restoration is, is as slow as it can be. And it's very hard if you're doing that trick to, to do it in slow motion. But if you pull that thread apart in slow motion, they really care. And many other tricks, like when Faye Presta does the bottle through table, which I believe to be the greatest close-up trick ever, she doesn't go, here's a bottle, here's a table, wham, through the table, like every other magician. She does it as slowly as she can get away with, just pushing the boundaries of the method to the point where it's, she's almost revealing the method, but it's just so slow, and that's why the reaction is good. So when I'm making a new routine, I always look at how can I make that climactic moment last as long as possible, uh, but with finality at the end. And with regard to where you choose to perform, you're you know, a well-known act on the sort of fringe circuit. You do Edinburgh pretty much every year. Uh, we're here in Adelaide. What is it about the sort of fringe audience that makes you uh, come back year after year and fill so much of your year performing in fringes? Well, I make money at the festivals. So, for me, a lot of people say, oh, don't do these festivals, you, you know, why are you doing them? You don't make any money. Probably make more money at a festival than I would if I was at home, probably. It doesn't mean it's enough money for the amount of work and energy and stress and yada yada that you put in, but so certainly they're worth doing for that reason for me. This one here in Adelaide, well, we're in the sun. Uh, we've done like nice things. I'm with friends. We've been on the beach yesterday. Myself and uh, a couple of people who run a podcast went and drank some tinnies in the park during the day and then staggered through our shows. Um, you know, so it's really nice to come out here and see friends. And also, in my opinion, uh, let's come. Magic is very, very hard to do. We know that. It's really hard. It takes longer to make a magic show than it does to, for example, write an album if you're a musician. Well, arguably. It depends on your standards, I suppose. But if I had a band that I liked and they didn't release a new album regularly, I would start to question their validity as artists. I might consider them one-hit wonders. That doesn't mean I wouldn't like their work, but it might start to slightly annoy me that they're not making new things. This is what I feel about magicians. Some of the magicians we all revere the most do the same act over and over and over and over again, and it drives me mad. And I understand why people do it, because it's the most cost-effective way of making money. You know, the, the, more, the longer you do an act, your margins increase. Your initial upfront investment disappears. But what's the point in your existence as a creator? So I, I, I do the festivals because I have to make a new show every year. And that's it. I would not enjoy the work of a painter who painted the same painting every time, every, every time I ever saw their work. It would annoy me. And that's a personal thing. I don't expect everybody else to feel that way, but I feel that way really strongly. Uh, I get bored of doing the same material too. But once the material gets to be as finely tuned as it can be, and let's be honest, after 100 shows, probably your material's not going to... You know, Gayton Bloom had a really nice example. When you first work on the material, you're thinking about it in terms of minutes. Like, I've got 60 minutes to fill. How am I going to fill it? 
then once you've filled it, the next thing is like, right, I've got 60 minutes to refine. Right? You refine it. Then you start looking at it in blocks, routine at a time. How can I improve this routine? How can I improve that routine? And now, before you know it, you're thinking about 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there. Then after a while, you're thinking about, oh, how am I going to make that 10 seconds better? And before you know it, you're thinking about, how am I going to make that split second better? And once you've gone down to split seconds, you start thinking, where am I going to look to improve it? And now you're not even talking about seconds. You're talking about changes that don't even affect the duration of running of the show. And once you've worried about where you're going to look, you start thinking about, oh, well, maybe I should polish my shoes now. And, and before you know it, there is, you're tinkering with nothing. You're, it's like you're painting on the same painting to the point where there's so much paint on it, it will fall off the wall. At some point, you've got to leave it alone and make something new. And that is why I do the festivals. Looking ahead and then looking at your live um, live shows and you as a live performer, what are some of your aims and aspirations uh, in that realm? I'd like to do more touring in the UK. At the moment, I do, I do Edinburgh, I do some other international festivals, and then I do corporates and private parties. I would like to be making... I was going to say making more money. That's a very mercenary way of looking at it. But I would like to be doing... Uh, profitable uh, small to mid-scale touring in the UK yeah. uh, because I think that actually as a business model it's quite a good one because you can get quite a lot of following go back year after year they bring their friends next year year after that they bring their friends and you know I think probably that's a way to um, to retire early I think whereas actually traveling all over the place doing festivals is not a way to retire early because you're you know you're you're, um, you're in like if you, if, if you market a show and no one comes one year, they might come the next year if they know where you're going to be. Whereas if you're, never, if you're not part of a routine, like a circuit, they, they're not going to come. You're going to be wasting your marketing dollars, I think. And what's your sort of plan of attack to kind of make that uh, aim a reality then? Uh, I'm just going to go and do all of the things that will get me the most exposure uh, within the UK. And um, so I've got some plans to do, you know, I don't know, I mean, where would a variety act take their act to be seen by a lot of people um, who might also be ready to buy tickets to see you in their local city? Like there's some TV shows where they might be sort of open access shows where you could take an act and people could say if it's good or not and people could get emotionally involved in supporting their favourite acts and seeing who goes through and all that sort of thing. See who's got the most talent. Um, so I'll probably do that sort of stuff this year. Yeah, very good, beautifully put. Um, let's talk about your consulting then and there's a particular project that you've been consulting and working on with Miss Chief Theatre. Tell us all about that. Well, I'm, I mean, we're sort of being a little bit naughty here because I don't know quite how much I'm allowed to say. Um, I mean, I'm sure I can say stuff, I'm, I'm contracted. Uh, I'm working on well, so uh, about the majority of my time day to day is spent as a magic consultant generally in the world of theatre often with other magicians occasionally TV um, in theatre I do all sorts of different things but you know the type of things like oh this person's got to be beheaded on stage or there's got to be a floating dagger or a ghost's got to appear or whatever well, some of them they're more niche things some I've done Actually, most of my work is on shows where the solutions seen visible on stage are not perceived to be magic. They're just like, you're just a, a brain for hire that has a bit of a lateral approach to solving the problem. So sometimes I work with set designers on like they want the set to transform or evolve in a way that's maybe a bit magical, or they want to do like, like oh, we just got this idea that like there's just projection into nothingness and then into mist and then you know like, and so they call in a magician and you, you help them in that way. 
Um, or I did one where they're like, oh, we want the set to rotate 90 degrees and the actors to be walking on the walls with no visible means of support. It's not technically a magic trick, uh, but they benefit from a magician's brain. And yeah, my big one this year is I'm doing, um, providing some magical support and advice and just general magic consultancy advice for Mischief Theatre who did the play that goes wrong, who are doing a collaborative project with Penn and Teller called Magic Goes Wrong. So I'm just, a, I suppose, a middleman between Penn and Teller and Mischief. Uh, obviously, uh, Penn and Teller are in the States, and also they're very busy, and Mischief are in the UK, and also they're very busy. So I am sort of just magic producing that show. And it's had, I've had quite a, quite a, um, a significant creative role in the show, but in the way that you do as a consultant, where they say, for example, we want to do this type of act, and then you come up, you know, and then I might write the act for them, and then they take it away. And before you know, it, it's not the act you provided. And you know, it's a, it's a collaborative evolution of ideas. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of the collaborative evolution of ideas, I'm the one that's got glue all over my hands. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean, what what an amazing thing to be doing. And also, I'm kind of like I've been in. Uh, there aren't that many types of performers or operations which I'm kind of really in awe of. But I've been a bit in awe of both Penn and Teller and Mischief Theatre, you know, for the things that they do, um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've been working with them now for almost a year already, and the show opens in December or something, a while away. But we just reached crunch point now, where we've just finally got everything in place. We know dates, uh, tickets are now available, and so we will. Uh, I, well, I will be frantically trying to get props sorted and also they're not magicians so teaching them how to do the magic and that's why you get such a strong emotional involvement because you know you're, you're trying to apply you're trying to adapt their body language through your the filter of your own body language so when I'm thinking about oh how is this person going to deliver that moment in my head I'm actually like taking on their physicality you know I'm sure you two know like as a when you do lots of work in magic and sleight of hand, you, you realise it's like dance or mime. And actually when you start teaching people, you realise like a vocal coach, you have to know the voices, for, to use a metaphor, of the performers. And you have to really understand physically how is that going to work, and how is it going to fit in with their timing. And, and then on top of that, as a prop builder and designer, you go, well, they've got to literally physically fit in the prop. And so before you know it, you're kind of like super involved in every element of the design. Like you might be involved in with costume. We've just been working on a quick change act that's part of that show. So you know, like literally, I've been sewing things. So it's really been a lot of fun. And uh, I think magicians, I hope they'll love that project. And I don't know quite. Yeah, I don't quite know where. I probably shouldn't even be talking about it. You know, someone's as a magic consultant, it's best to just keep your mouth shut and say you haven't worked on stuff. But this one's going to be really exciting. It looks amazing, and it was. There was a spot on the yeah. We Are Most Amazing and Amazing yeah. thing, and it looks so, so much And there uh, was a spot on Comic Relief as well this year, which actually is tomorrow, but I'm assuming you're not going to edit this <laughs> in time. So, that, anyway, it was, it's actually today, but we, of course we're the other side of the planet. So, uh, anyway, yeah, so there's a spot, another spot went out on Comic Relief. I mean, talk about reaching the point where you can promote a show effectively. Can you imagine that? If you or I were to write a new show and they go, oh, uh, almost a year before you open, do you want to do a bit on, uh, on ITV, on the most high, like We Are Most Amused and Amazed, and oh, maybe a year before you can open, you can do a bit on Comic Relief. So actually those two routines had to be put together very rapidly 
in order to uh, to go on to those TV shows because the PR value of that. Two final questions because I'm keen not to keep you for too long. Um, one quick one. I know you mentioned on consultancy that actually it's best to keep your mouth shut and not let people know that you were involved. But who are some of the people that you've maybe worked with or what projects that you've maybe worked with that you found particularly enjoyable? Um, I just finished, uh, well, earlier this year, I, I did, um, I worked on a production of a, a Christmas Carol for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and we had the, the fortune of doing it twice. So we did it two, I don't know years, what year are we in now, 2019? We did it Christmas 2018 to 19, and we did it Christmas 2017 to 18. So I had the really lovely luxury there of being able to re-engineer everything from the first production to the second production. And the way that it works at the RSC, they've got all of the kind of um, facilities to do total automation of everything. So the first year, everything was kind of mantronic because we didn't know what the lifespan of the show was going to be. The second year, I got to I, literally they called me into the workshop. They're like, "Here you go, Ben." And I saw all of the things I designed. But now you push a button and they work. <laughs> and that was really lovely, especially as they'd done all the hard work and I hadn't done anything. I just turned up to watch it work. And they went, "Can you sign this off?" I went, "Yep." <laughs> Um, I've done loads of fun. I've done loads of fun ones recently. Um, oh, I had a lot of fun. I did these uh, special effects for the stage production of The Exorcist. That was uh, uh, autumn 2017. I did that, and that was an amazing thing to work on because, it, well, that, that was another example of I had two goes at it. It was actually autumn 2016 originally. We did it at the Birmingham Rep. Took almost a year before it went into the West End, and in that time I re-engineered everything. I had a spinning head illusion that I'm super proud of. Uh, that was like the most amazing Rube Goldberg crazy machine. And the first version that I put to the Birmingham never worked, and every night at 10:30 I got an angry phone call. You know, like on cartoons when they have to hold the phone far away from their heads, <laughs> and the voice is really squeaky. Got one of those every night. They're like, it didn't work ever there, but that was made for only a two-week run or something. So it's that, it's that balance of like time and energy and resources versus how long the show's going to run. So second time round, I got to completely re-engineer that and I got a real thrill out of it. The guy that I got in to make, remake the thing, uh, we 3D printed all the component parts because if that show were to ever have a future life, I was really into the idea that we just print the prop again. Oh, we want to open that show in New York? Okay, I'll email you the props. That was quite exciting to me. Um, yeah, I'm just about to start work on... A, on an adaptation of a book which I haven't read yet but everybody tells me the book's amazing so I'm really excited to do that <laughs> because I'm very happy to jump on the bandwagon of things that people like. Um, is that a book you can't mention at the minute? Or? No, it's a book called A Thousand Splendid Sons which is by the guy that wrote The Kite Runner. Apparently it's like a really sad thing. I probably shouldn't be saying I haven't read it yet because I've already taken the job. I've read the script of the play but I need to sit down and read the actual book. And that's just like really weird kind of stuff, Bring, like trying to physically show on stage people's memories. I did, um, I worked, my first major consultancy job really was, well, TV consultancy job was, I worked on Ben Earl's TV show called Trick Artist, which was in like 2008 or nine or something. And I was 18 or 19 and I was like thinking, how the fuck did I get this job? I was just pretending. They'd be like, oh Ben, yeah, you know all about that, don't you? I'd be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That everyone's CV says they're good at, they're like high, highly proficient at skiing. <laughs> is, that, is that common on everyone's CV? I've never had a CV. I've never had a CV, but I can imagine that everyone lies about stuff that they would never actually be tested on. And then, of course, working with Dono, who's a wonderful slice of hand performer. Uh, that was really interesting, too, because I really learned about the intricacies of TV there. 
and how stressful and difficult it is to make TV. And then all the armchair magicians sit back and they say, oh, I'd have done it differently. You say, oh, okay, let's see what you'd have done at four in the morning when you've got no money and uh, your participants have pulled out and, you know, then let's see what you do. TV is very hard. People always assume that TV is being made under the optimum conditions, but the reality is it's never being made under the optimum conditions and you're always up against it. So the fact that anything ever even gets made is a miracle. Final question for you, Ben. You mentioned... uh a book uh, a moment ago I want to oh, talk yeah. to you about books you um, firstly how many magic books do you think you own and secondly what are some of the funniest things that you found on the pages of magic books uh, I own a lot of magic books um, thousands it's my dirty addiction uh, I still in fact I bought a magic book this morning uh, so and every day I look at like I'm looking for second hand ones or ones I haven't got or anything. I really really like magic books which is a shame because slowly my pool of knowledge is getting smaller and smaller because I'm not reading anything else but magic books. So people say, oh, did you hear about this thing that's not magic related? And quick as a flash, I can turn it into a magic trick related thing I can talk about. What's the funny, I mean, I, yeah, well, I find lots of funny things in old magic books, mainly stuff which is like really very sexist, which is of course terrible and part of the reason why we're so far behind in terms of equality and magic, but like, um, my favourite one ever, I'm going to actually, I took a picture of, I'm actually going to pull it up here. My favourite one ever, I found in an old Will Goldstone, uh, I think they're called Magician's Annual. They're like 1930s, beautiful, really beautiful books. In it, it's got cooking an omelette on a lady's head. <laughs> okay, here it is, literally pulled up here. Cooking an omelette on a lady's head. This effective trick creates endless excitement when performed. The spectators watch the performer fit a metal oil stove on a lady's head. Then he applies a lighted match to the wick. A frying pan into which is dropped the contents of two eggs is held over the flame for about a minute or so when the eggs are cooked ready for serving. The oil stove should be made of sheet iron and measure two and a half inches inside, three and a half inches outside. It must secretly have three oil wells three inches deep. Secretly, the performer drops a wet sponge on the lady's head through the stove whilst placing it into position. Coconut oil is the best to use for this experiment. Uh, anyway, so there you go. You secretly drop a wet sponge on a lady's head before genuinely lighting a fire on top of it and genuinely cooking an omelette on her head. And what I love is the audacity that Will Goldstone, who was very famous for never doing any of the tricks in his books, just making them up, pulling them out of his Goldstone, <laughs> The audacity of him saying coconut oil is the best. Like, that's exactly what I would say too if I was lying about a trick I'd never done. I'd be like, oh, and by the way, only blue cards work for this one. And you often see that in magic books, uh, that they've never done the trick, but they've absolutely lied. On the topic of magic books, uh, I have got a magic book coming out, which I believe you spoke to the um, co-writer of this book on your podcast uh, earlier in your season. Because um, Neil Kelso is writing up my material for a book which has been published by uh, a well-known magic book publisher and was due to come out about six months ago <laughs> and so we'll probably come out in about 10 years time no it's all finished so it should be out hopefully in time for the conventions kind of launches next year I would imagine Blackpool the session that sort of time I think but they told me that it's classier to not talk about it the publishers but I'm not a very classy guy and as you can tell quite leaky with my secrets <laughs> Leaky with oh, I've got another one here for you. I pulled up another very good idea for it found in a hilarious old magic book. The effect here. 
A freely selected card is forced on an unknowing spectator. Technically not an effect to say a card is forced on someone, but nonetheless. After a fumbling attempt to get a rooster named Henry to run around the table and peck out the selected card, a hen lays an egg. The egg is given to the person who selected the card. He opens the egg, and inside the egg, written on an omelette, is the name of the selected card. <laughs> True? Uh, that's really there. Found that in a magic, uh, magic book. I just think I found that in a magic magazine. That reads a lot more like something in a magazine, you know. This is obviously a time when uh, omelettes are the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I've also got, got a picture. This came. There's an amazing picture that came from, um, I think this came from uh, Bruce Elliott's Magic as a Hobby, I think. Uh, anyway, I can't tell because I've only got the picture here, but it is a very dapper dressed man in a double-breasted suit. But it's like a, like a cross-section image where you can see what's in his pockets. And in his front trouser, left-hand trouser pocket, there are four or five little balls, and little arrows point to them, where it says, inside his pocket, he's got three sponges, a potato, a lemon, and an onion, all in one pocket. And I love the idea, it's like, is that three sponges, a potato, a lemon, and an onion in your pocket, or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> like, clearly nobody's ever gone on stage with all of those in one little pocket. So anyway, yeah, very funny magic things. And uh, so, very quickly then, Ben, what can we expect from your book? Is it all omelette-related tricks or, or not? The book is, is um, stuff taken from my solo shows, which all actual stuff that we've actually done, which makes a difference, because uh, I'm not trying to slag anyone off, but generally speaking in magic books, like, just because you've worked a routine doesn't mean it's good. Like anybody can work any old coin trick at a party and say they've worked it. But when you take material that has been done on stage in relatively high profile shows for hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of shows, like there's something to learn from the material. So this book goes into like arduous details about how to set the props, like unbelievably painful detail. The type of detail you need if you really wanted to do the routine, but of course no one ever does routines for magic books because they never go into any detail. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Uh, it's got some of my best routines in it. Uh, in fact, I've actually got some stuff that I might have to take out because I've just done a TV-related thing where one of the main tricks in the book's in that and I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should be releasing anything. I don't know where I stand. But um, it's mainly theatrical, parlour-slash-cabaret stage magic and a couple of mad ideas just for fun. Super. Ben, thank you very much. Thank Sorry, you very much. Oh, but there is time to play one more very quick heart to heart with Ben. I've been disappointed by how few hearts you've managed to find. Two hearts to heart. You got loads. You got got loads. Here's my favourite one for you, Ben. Heart to heart with Ben Hart. So, is this about you, Ben Hart, or? another famous heart. My favourite game as a child was to burn spiders. <laughs> that is about me, Ben Hart. <laughs> you know, I had a line in my show in 2013, which was, when I was a kid, I used to play, uh, I used, oh God, I can't remember it. When I was a kid, I used to keep a spider in a matchbox just to freak out my friends, who were all imaginary. <laughs> that was the line. <laughs> and then I'd say, who were all imaginary. And I kept them in a matchbox as well, <laughs> so they could scare the spider, which was also imaginary. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> uh, but yes, that was me. I was, you know, they say that that's an actual sign of like affectionless psychopathy is genuinely like burning spiders. If you actually do that, that is actually a true sign that you might have problems. And also, whilst we're on the topic of, you know, uh, science and knowledge and, and looking in and reading about things, um, would you recommend the um, Modern Science Museum here in Adelaide for any guests coming to Adelaide and why or why not? <laughs> we went to the uh, Mod Science related thing which is sold as a science museum but really I think it's a museum designed to get people into a cafe and uh, it was like it was so shit that only futuristic beings could comprehend how shit it was it was like we went in there and they had uh, nothing to look at but they had written on the walls of an empty black room what do Australians associate with peace one of the things was shoes then we went we thought well maybe all the science is hiding upstairs <laughs> so we went upstairs to the extraterrestrial lounge now this was very much like a terrestrial lounge. It was <laughs> very much like an airport waiting lounge. And they said, a lady there, very enthusiastic lady, wearing a very like unusual intergalactic waistcoat, said to us, Hello, this is a lounge designed to appeal to extraterrestrials. This is where we think they'd like to spend their time if they were to come to Earth. And I looked at her right in the eye and sighed. Because firstly, we're not yet aware of extraterrestrial life. Secondly, who's to know what colour palette they like? And thirdly, why have you wasted an entire room in your science museum on a fucking extraterrestrial lounge? Who cares? So we thought, let's go to the next room. That's the augmented reality room, where they fitted us with headsets, and we thought, oh, this is going to be exciting. Maybe we'll be racing through the outer, you know, some galactic, through the many possible infinite fractal universes growing and dividing and dying. But no, instead we got the field hospital experience where we had to sit and wait in virtual reality for a virtual doctor to fill out a virtual prescription. I mean, if there's a waste of a reality, that is definitely it. Cheers, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.